1: Hey, I'm Jim Richards. I want to welcome you to message number four in this series about the mind of Christ, seeing the world through the eyes of God. And today we're going to be talking about the contract. You know, we talk about the covenant, and and covenant really is technically the right word to use about uh, the commitments that God makes between uh, himself and between the human race. But Sometimes using that word covenant causes us to come up with some really kind of mystical, almost false concepts about what it is. Really, a covenant is just a contract. And the only thing that makes a difference between a contract and a covenant is uh, what was involved to set the covenant in place. You know, in a contract, two people give the word, they sign a name. But in a covenant, uh, there has to be a a shedding of blood, uh, and there has to be something that is just beyond two people signing their name, even though signing their name is a big deal. But if you don't understand a contract, then you will not understand a covenant. Now, one of the things that we have to understand about God, and this is so foreign to most people because religion has lied to us for nearly 2,000 years about what I'm about to say. God wants to make himself known to the human race. He wants us to understand who he is. He wants us to understand what we can expect from him. He wants us to be clear about the promises that he has made to us. And he wants to use covenants as a way to show that he is binding himself to the commitment that he makes. Now, I'm just going to tell you, the only people that have trouble knowing God are the ones who refuse to accept the testimony that he has provided about himself. You know, in, in Isaiah 53, which is the fulcrum of the entire Word of God, everything about the Word of God comes together in Isaiah 53, where it talks about what Jesus did on the cross. It amazes me how many believers have never read Isaiah 53. And what amazes me even more is how many preachers have never preached about Isaiah 53. So in Isaiah 53, he opens this thing up and says, you know, uh, whose report are you going to believe? And that's where this all has a start. That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Whose report will I believe? Will I believe my denominations? Will I believe my pastors? Will I believe my families? Will I believe my opinion? Whose report am I going to believe? In other words, if, and let me say this, any report that we accept about God that is not based on what he has revealed to us is to call God a liar and to consider our opinion or someone else's opinion more valid than his own. God always wants us to know what we can expect. Otherwise, how could we operate faith? Again, religion has totally messed us up on our concepts of faith because we have the idea that faith is when we believe something long enough and hard enough to actually convince God that he has to do it. That has, And that is the opposite of what faith is. Uh, faith is where when God has said something, or when God has promised something, or when God has made a contract with us, that we believe that no matter what anybody else says, and because we believe it in our heart, uh, God will give us the grace, the power, the strength, the capacity, the ability to walk out whatever that, whatever that promise is. Grace is not just God saying, "Hey, I like you guys. Hey, you know, have a good day." You know, it's no it's, that that is such foolishness. Grace is not compassion, even though compassion is involved in grace. Grace is not mercy, even though mercy is involved in grace. In other words, there's all of these. False definitions, these religious definitions, using biblical words, but they don't really mean grace. Grace is about God's capacity to work in your life and give you the power from your heart to do whatever he says that you can do, to have whatever he says that you can have. Now, all of these things about compassion and kindness and and, and all that is, is woven into how he gives it to us, because we don't earn it. It is all an act of love and kindness and mercy and compassion and all those factors, but that's that's how it comes. That is not what it is. Now, contracts are so very, very important. When you enter into a contract with someone, the contract serves to make the intentions and the commitments of both parties clear and obvious to the other person, to one another, and really to serve as a testimony to the public or to anyone who ever needs to investigate that contract. Now, God's covenants or God's contracts, they reveal how he will uphold his word and his name and uh, and his intentions in all of his interactions with mankind. Now, one of the things I want to do, I want to start right here. We're going to talk about the fact that God is a God of peace. Now, one of the things that we teach our people in my private coaching group, Ultimate Impact, is uh, is to look for patterns. God reveals and solidifies things to us, not just by making one clear didactic statement, uh, but he will make a clear statement. But then all through the word, he is going to show what it looks like when he Fulfills that statement when he puts it into practice, whenever he enforces it. And so you start looking, you start seeing patterns that open up a greater depth and breadth to anything that God says about himself. Now, this starts getting into what the Bible calls the Logos, which gets into where we start being understanding the mind of Christ, the mind of God, because the Logos gets into the logic. The reasoning, you know, why does God do what he does, uh, the way that God does what he does, the logos gets into conceptual realities in ways that just single one-dimensional statements cannot reveal to us. So I'm just going to run through a few things right here and talk to you about the God of peace. And you're going to see in a moment why this is so important to understanding the contract. First of all, God's name is Jehovah Shalom. Uh, so He is our peace. He which as our, uh, as our peace, it means that not only is there peace between us, between God and man, but there is also God's provision because shalom gets into the whole concept of provision. Uh, Romans fifteen thirty three, as well as several other scriptures in the New Testament, refer to God as the God of peace. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, when speaking of Jesus, it says, in his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. Now, we could spend, man, we could spend uh, a, a month on that that one name of the Messiah. Uh, I mean, how can he be called the Everlasting Father? Well, because he and the Father are one. He reveals the Father perfectly, and as as such, he reveals himself as the Prince of Peace because God himself is the God of Peace. We also know that he is the God of comfort. Colossians 3, 15, uh, and 16, it tells us to let or allow the peace of God to rule or be the referee in your hearts to which also you were called one body and be thankful. So so not only is God the God of peace, not only is Jesus the Prince of Peace, but as believers, we are called to, to allow peace to rule in our heart. We, we don't ever want to leave the place of peace. Now, Keep in mind, many people get very subjective on that, and get very confused on that, because for for so many people, the concept of peace is nothing more than the absence of conflict. The concept of peace sometimes is that false witness that a person gets when they finally they're finally going to get what they want, even though it may be immoral, it may be dishonest, it may be ungodly. They kind of have this moment of of a sense of fulfillment and they think that's peace. No, that that's not peace. Peace is a tranquility that has nothing to do with what's going on outside of you, has nothing to do with uh, uh, what's happening in your physical life. Peace is something that the Bible says passes all logic, all understanding, all intellectual uh, uh, opinions. So God's God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of peace. uh, God's name is peace, and uh, uh, we are, are then to let peace always rule or be the referee in our hearts. Matthew 5, 9 talks about peacemakers, and the Bible mentions several times about peacemakers. We are called to be peacemakers. A Peacemakers doesn't mean that we go for uniformity and we try to get everybody to agree on everything. A Peacemakers gets into being able to bring the peace of God into a situation, being the voice of reason being the voice of the logos, the logic of God in every situation. You know, Luke two fourteen, where we have the uh, introduction of Jesus into the world. You know, we have this this time where the angels break out, the heavenly host breaks out in song, saying, "Glory to God the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men." So here we begin to see very specifically the the purpose of Jesus, and the pur- purpose of Jesus was to bring peace on earth. Now, this is not peace on earth between men. This is peace on earth between God and man. So Jesus is the way that we actually enter into a living peace with our Father and with our God. As a matter of fact, every time a messenger of any kind appeared on behalf of the Lord in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the opening remark that was made Nearly every time, or maybe every time, was peace be unto you. Why? Because when God shows up and brings the truth, the truth always should bring us to a place of peace. So, so we start seeing these patterns of how God reveals every aspect of who he is, every aspect of his interaction, every aspect of what should be working. As a matter of fact, one you know, one of the interesting things is is when we experience faith righteousness a righteousness that we receive as a free gift through the Lord Jesus, according to Romans 5.1, then we have peace with God. That's where we really enter into this, this place of peace. Now, you say, what's all this got to do with the covenant? Okay. The covenant that we experience with God is a contract, it's an agreement where God harmonizes his word, his name, his commitment, his intentions for the human race. And very specifically, he does this through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me remind you, by the way, check out my website, Dr. Jim Richards.com, Impact And, you know, I always teach a, um, a, a support message for people who want to go deeper in this than we can have time to provide in these, in these videos, but they are not duplicates. In other words, there are things in the videos that are not in the audios or things in the audios, not in the videos, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you every ounce of truth that I can give you. And also I want you to know you can uh, download and purchase the, uh, the audios right now, and you can start using them right along with these uh, video messages and and when you purchase, you not only make an investment in yourself, but we use those resources to make an investment in the world to take the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what the church is supposed to be doing. So, Isaiah 52, you know, we, we realize in Isaiah 52 that, that God explains that the, one of the reasons that people go into captivity, the reason that his people go into captivity, is because they don't really see him as he is, and because they don't see him as he is, they never believe the gospel of peace. And the apostle Paul, as a matter of fact, as, as a whole, the church doesn't preach the gospel of peace because they don't know there is a gospel of peace. They don't know that that peace should be the the primary promise of uh, of the gospel. Because when sin is eradicated, and we are Cleanse from our sins, then we should have peace with God. We should have peace in every aspect of our relationship with God. So Isaiah fifty two explains that, and and if you haven't been following this series, you can go back and pick up where we where we talked some about that. This is so crucially important. Then Isaiah fifty three goes into how Jesus became our replacement and paid the debt that we owed uh, for our sin, and we did owe a debt legally. Uh, So God can't deny his righteousness, and if God just said, I'm just going to let your sin go, then then he would no longer obey. Righteous God, that is not justice. Letting people get by with their violence, with their crimes, with their offenses, uh, with their immoralities, with their injustices, that is not justice, and it is definitely not righteousness. So at the same time, God did not create us to endure his wrath. God wanted to deliver us from wrath, and God wanted to find a way that we could stand before him and not not just appear to be cleansed, not just appear to be righteous, but to actually be righteous and to have that sense of righteousness in, in our hearts. And so, so the debt had to be paid. There are many people that Today, that do not believe that there was a legal binding reason that Jesus had to literally become our sins and literally go through everything that we would have had to endure as a consequence of those sins. If he had not done that, if those sins had not been paid for, then God would have been denying his righteousness and his justice just to say, okay, I'm just, I'm just gonna let that go. That is not the way that works. And if God just lets it go, then then why do we have to believe on Jesus? We believe on Jesus not in a general sense, but we believe on Jesus because He is the one who became our sin. He went through this reconciliation, this exchange, where God made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ. And so, uh, believing on Jesus is way more than just believing that the historical account of his life is true. It's about believing the truth about what he accomplished on the cross. So Isaiah 53 goes into what, I, what Jesus did for us on the cross. Then Isaiah 54 goes into the covenant that God established as a result of sins actually being paid for. And I'm just scratching the surface, by the way, on this, on this whole thing about the covenants. You can get my book, The Gospel of Peace, and that will that will take you deeper into it. You can get my audio series the uh, on the gospel of peace, and, and you can get a monumental amount of information that will take you into the depths of God's mercy, God's goodness, and the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. So in Isaiah 54, and just like Isaiah 52, this is a prophecy that has uh double meaning and so many of the prophecies can have double meaning some of them can have a uh, uh, single meaning some of them can have more than a double meaning but Isaiah 54 uh this prophecy that is directed primarily toward Israel actually begins to see its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah and in what God does through the Messiah and in the book of Ezekiel, I'm not going to go there. You can look it up. There are at least a dozen references in Ezekiel about the covenant of peace that God will establish. Now, in Isaiah 54:7, 7, uh, this is when it starts getting more directly about what happened with Jesus on the cross. He says, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you. Now, most people don't believe God forsook Jesus on the cross. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just quoting scripture. You see, if we had to die without our sins being eradicated and us being made righteous, then we would have recognized and felt the absence of God's presence in our when we die, when we cross over. Uh, and so Jesus... Was experiencing exactly what we would experience if we had to pay for our debts. So he says, That's why he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so God says, Isaiah 54 7, For a, a mere moment, I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Now, let me ask you something. Why would God have to have mercy on Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why he would have to have mercy on Jesus because Jesus had become sin. And if we become sin, then we have to experience the mercy of God that he is willing to take us through the process of of taking hold of our righteousness. So, I mean, listen, I'm just going to tell you, I, I have met very few believers that actually believe the price that Jesus paid on the cross. I've got a, a a series called Three Days Change the World, and I will come out with a much more detailed book about that very soon. Uh so uh, if you if you will know what Jesus really did for you, you need to, you're gonna to have to dive into what happened on the cross, in the grave, and in the resurrection. What happened? What how why did that mean anything? Because our faith for the experiencing not only salvation but the grace of God actually is is intimately connected to what happened through the death, burial, and resurrection. So anyhow, so he says, he says so. Great mercies, I'm going to gather you. Now listen to this: with a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. So Jesus endured the wrath of God. That's why we are delivered from wrath. Uh, if God poured wrath on us for our sins, even, in, even temporarily in this life, then he would be denying what Jesus accomplished for us. And so, but God is the Redeemer. He is not, he is not uh, the Punisher. Now, he will be the one who pours out wrath on those who choose to try to destroy the earth, decide with the Antichrist, who reject Jesus, as their righteousness. Verse 9, so he says, now this is like the waters of Noah tonight. This what? This thing where God forsook Jesus on the cross, uh, poured his wrath on him. Actually, actually, in Isaiah 53, in the original language, it says he caused all of our sins, all of our iniquities to rush violently upon Jesus, which is what you see as a type in the and the sacrifices, when the priest would lay his hands, or actually when the sinner would lay his hands on the head of this innocent lamb, and that, that was a, a type of what God would ultimately do in Jesus, where our sins go from us to that lamb. And in this case, it was to the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, now, now this, is, this is like, or similar to, the waters of Noah. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So now God made a covenant with Noah, which those of you who believe the Bible, and sadly, very few Christians today believe the the literal account of the flood, even though there's more scientific evidence uh, for that than there is any scientific evidence that can that can disprove it. There's not one thing in the Bible that has ever been scientifically disproven. Uh so you know when you when you start going there, you're just grabbing at straws, you're grabbing at the lies that were created by false science, by wicked governments, uh by people who seek to dominate you. And the only way they can do that is make sure you can't trust in God. But uh God made a covenant with Noah. And you know uh I, I can't go into it because of lack of time, but because of the way the earth changed at the flood, this was the first time that, uh, that there was ever a rainbow. And the rainbow was the seal, it, much like a wedding band is a seal of the, of the vows that that uh, a man and woman make to each other. The rainbow was, was a seal that said, I will never destroy the world by water again. Now, those of you who believe the account of the flood and believe the Bible— Believe that, and you know that the world will never be destroyed by water again. He says, so likewise have I sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So he said, just just as surely as I will never destroy the world by water again, I will never be angry with you, and I will never rebuke you. Well, why? Because Jesus believed God's promises to him, Jesus believes uh, the righteousness that was imputed to him by God, and he was raised up in the power of righteousness. And so he's never going to become our sin again. He's never going to go through any of that again. He has done that once for all mankind, and we can choose to believe it and participate in it. We can reject it and not participate in it. But anyhow, something that's so very important here is to realize that God is not making a covenant here with the entire human race. If he was making a covenant with the human race, then then the human race would have to abide by that covenant and would have to uphold our terms of the covenant, and we couldn't do it. You know, God did that with the nation of Israel. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it because, because of the flesh, because of the weakness of the flesh and the, and the power of sin working in them. So he says, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed from you. So God is saying he's making this covenant with Jesus, and he is calling it the covenant of peace. This is the covenant. This is the contract that God makes with the Lord Jesus, promising him that just like he will never destroy the world by water again, he will never pour any wrath out on Jesus. He will never be angry with him. He will never reject him. You say, well, how does that help us? Because when we are born again, we are baptized into the body of Christ. So this means that everything that Christ receives from God, it legally becomes ours because we are in him. Everything that uh, God pre- Protects Jesus from, we are protected from because we are in him. So we have a covenant of peace that God made with Jesus, not with us. You say, well, why is that so great? Well, since Jesus has already died, then his last will and testament has been sealed and it cannot be changed. Now, if he was still alive here on planet Earth, as far as covenants go between men, then, then yes, if he faltered, if he ever faltered, then that covenant would be broken. But this covenant, this contract cannot be broken. Now, the promise about the flood was sealed in the rainbow or by the rainbow. This covenant is sealed by the blood of Jesus, which means that if God were to ever break this covenant, then he would be rejecting and trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus. So God has made this covenant of peace with the Lord Jesus. We are in the Lord uh, Lord Jesus. That's how we uh, actually understand the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is this, based on this covenant that God made with Jesus. And our ability to see and understand God is made because not because we just somehow know what Jesus is thinking, but because all of this has been revealed to us through scripture so that we could be one with God, just like Jesus is. The difference is we are one with God because we're in him. Be sure to share this with a lot of people. Be sure and be here next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the Weekly Impact Ministries World Changers podcast with Dr. Jim Richards. If you like what you've just heard, we encourage you to share our web address www.impactministries.com or drjimrichards.com with friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the resources section of our website from previous broadcasts and our videos. Join us next week for another great message by Dr. Jim Richards.